Thank you. My name is Larry. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. My sobriety date's November the 7th, 1978. Thank you. My home group in Louisville is a group that meets on Sunday night. It's an open speaker meeting. It's called the Shively Group. If you're ever there on Sunday night, I hope you'll come. We'll make you feel welcome. My sponsor is a crusty old guy with about 35 years in this program named Jack S. Some of y'all may have heard Jack. He's traveled around. I call him Jack S. today. I used to call him Jack Ass. Uh, I still do when he's not with me. <laughs> but I love him to death. He's been good for me. Jack was my second sponsor. I've had two. Uh, my first one retired. He just got away from AA. I get, they told me after putting up with me, he had to retire. So I don't know if that's true or not. But it's good to be here. Uh, y'all the best looking group of Canadians I've ever talked to. Uh, but I've never been here before either. <laughs> I want to thank the committee. I want to thank Sharon and especially Sue. Sue's kept in touch with me, and uh, she's exciting to talk to. You know, she just makes you want to come to Canada, and I was really looking forward to it until I got to the immigration office. <laughs> and they told me I was undesirable to enter Canada. And I looked at that woman. I didn't like her from the get-go. And uh, I thought, hell, if you think I'm undesirable... Looking at that record, you should have knew me back then, you know, and uh, I thought I was going home, you know. She said, you got to come up with uh, $150, and I said, adios, I'm going back to Kentucky, you know. So uh, Austin, you know, was sitting out there, and he wanted to know if I was trying to hijack the plane or pinch the steward on the rear end or, you know. Uh, but it all worked out, you know, and I want to thank the committee especially for uh, bailing me out, you know. Uh, <laughs> Sue told me it had been a long time since she's bailed anybody out. <laughs> and I called my wife and I told her about it. She really got a laugh about it. You know, I didn't think it was too funny, but she really, you know, that's that sick Al-Anon humor, I guess. Uh, she said, that's what you get for being a crook. <laughs> but I am glad to be here. I, I've had a wonderful time. You know, what happened at the airport was just an incident. And what's really important is the love and the warmth that I've felt since, felt since I've been here. I've had a great time. Y'all a great bunch of people, and I've enjoyed being here. And I hope I can work things out where I possibly can come back to Canada <laughs> without being held for ransom every time. Uh, I'm nervous. You know, I always get nervous when I speak. And uh, by the way, I want to thank somebody for that fruit basket that was in my room, the lovely fruit basket. Uh, I'm really glad. I always like them little goodies in my room. Uh, they took me out for dinner, and uh, I can't eat much right before I talk. You know, I get real nervous, and a guy told me, he said, Larry, you don't look like you're nervous when you're up there talking. I said, really? I said, well, have you ever seen a swan out on a lake? If you watch a swan out on a lake, gliding across that water, all peaceful and serene, but underneath that water, he's paddling like hell, and that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm really paddling. I never know what I'm going to say, but I do know what I'm going to say because what I was taught when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous was to share my story. Because when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I was very unique. Well, sure, nobody had ever lived the way I'd lived. And I went to my first AA meeting, and a guy got up and talked about talking to a vacuum cleaner. And I liked that old boy. He made me laugh. You know, and I went to my second AA meeting, and an old wino got up, and he talked about drinking wine and shitting in his pants. And I said, you know what? I might be in the right place. <laughs> I could identify with them people. And I'm not a teacher. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a preacher. All I can do is tell you my story. 
And that's what I want to do tonight because that's what was done for me. I want to tell you, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard a joke and it kind of reminded me and me and my wife. And I like to open my talks with this joke. It's about a judge. Now, I've never been a judge, but I've been in front of a lot of them. And I like to tell jokes on them. And if there's one here, I'll make amends after the meeting. But it seemed like this uh, judge was a good alcoholic and he was kind of henpecked. He wanted to get out of the house and he told his wife he was going down to the courthouse to work on some papers. And he got out of the house and he went straight for his favorite beer joint. And during the course of the night, he got drunk and he got sick and he threw up all over the front of his shirt. And going home that night, he said, mm, what am I going to tell my wife? So he tiptoed in, he took that shirt off and threw it down the laundry hamper. And the next morning, he got ready to go to the courthouse and his wife was waiting at the front door. And as he started out, she said, say, what happened to you last night? And he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I was downstairs doing the laundry this morning and your shirt was down there and it's got vomit all over the front of it. Well, being a good alcoholic, he was also a good liar. And he said, oh, honey, I meant to tell you about that. He said, last night I was down at that courthouse working on them papers, and they brought a drunk in. And he said, I was trying to help him with that drunk, and he threw up all over the front of my shirt. He said, but don't you worry. I'm going to pay him back when he comes in front of that bench today. I'm going to give him 30 days. And his wife said, you ought to give him 90 days. He said, 90? How come 90? And she said, he done something in your pants, too. <laughs> that was me and my wife. I could tell him, but she could always top him. I want to tell you that there's three kinds of drinkers in the world. There's a social drinker, there's a heavy drinker, and there's an alcoholic. And I'm going to tell you how you tell the difference. If you watch a social drinker and they go into a bar and they'll ask the waitress for a drink, and the waitress will bring them a drink, she'll get ready to leave, and they'll look down and they'll see there's a fly in their drink. And they'll holler for the waitress, and they'll say, Ma'am, there's a fly in my drink. Would you please bring me another one? And they'll take their drink and bring them a fresh drink. Now, a good old heavy drinker will come into that same beer joint, and he'll order a drink. He'll look down and see there's a fly in his. He'll pick that fly out and set it on the table. And I'm going to tell you about the good alcoholic, at least an alcoholic like me. Go into a beer joint, you'll order a drink, they'll bring you the drink, and you'll look down and see there's a fly in it, and you'll reach in and you'll grab that fly and holler, spit it out, spit it out. <laughs> you know? That's the kind of drinker I was. I didn't want that damn fly to get none of mine. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm from a large family. We lived in a large Catholic neighborhood. We wasn't Catholic, but my daddy took lessons from them because there was 13 of us. Big family, nine boys in that family. And it was an exciting family. We lived in a section of Louisville that was rough. There was a beer joint on every corner. There was a lot of happenings down there. And if you caught my last name, it was Adams. And we was the Adams family, long before they come on television, you know. <laughs> And our job was to entertain the neighborhood, and we did a good job of it. You know, there was always something going on at my house. My dad was an alcoholic, and uh, I can remember my dad would come in on Friday nights, and he would be drunk, and him and my mother would start to argue and fight. And I can remember on many a night my dad getting a butcher knife and running my mother through the house. And I was just a little bitty kid, and I would hide under beds and in closets to get away from my father. I loved him and I hated him. I couldn't understand that. But I would hide under them beds, and I remember thinking, boy, when I get big, I'm going to get my mother, and I'm going to get her away from this mess. And little did I know, the same disease that my father had, I was to have also. Uh, it was an exciting neighborhood I, I grew up in. It was a bar on every corner, and I can remember as a young kid, I would go to a boys' club. We would go up there and play, us young boys. And to go to that boys' club, I had to pass these beer joints. And there was one beer joint at 29th in Portland. We lived down in Portland. And there was a beer joint on that corner, and as a little bitty kid, 
If I went by there, I had a lot of older brothers, and they was in this beer joint at 29th in Portland. Had a big old oval window on the front of it, and if I would get up on my tiptoes, I was real little, and I'd look in there, and I want you to know it was the most exciting place I ever seen in my life. The band played behind chicken wire, the tables was bolted to the floor, and they were shootings and cuttings, and everything was happening in there. Now, I'm a little bitty fella, and I thought, man, I can't wait to get in there. You know, that's not much of an ambition to grow up with, you know. Uh, but by the time I was 12 years old, you know, when you're from a large family, you begin to get out of the house because there was always so much commotion, I began to hang on street corners. And I experienced my first drunk when I was 12 years old. I got drunk, I got sick, and I got in trouble with the police. And that was to be my story for the next 25 years. I did it over and over and over and looked for different results every time I did it. I want to tell you that uh, by the time I was 19 years old, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 19 years old. And I'm going to tell you how I had my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. Me and my brother Don, he's in this fellowship today, uh, we got locked up for drunk and disorderly conduct. And we're in jail, we're busted, and we're disgusted. And my brother Don looked at me and he said, you want to get out of jail? And that's a crazy question to ask a guy in jail. I said, yeah. He said, you see that guy over there? And I said, so what? And he said, he's with AA. And I said, so what? And he said, if you'll call him over here and tell him you'll go to some AA meetings, he'll get us out of jail. Now, why my brother didn't call him over, I don't know, but he was smarter than me, you know. And I called this guy over. His name was Hildrick Sanders. Hildrick's dead today. And I called him over, you know, and told him I, I wanted to get out of jail. I wanted to go to some AA meetings. He said, well, you go to three AA meetings, Larry. And I said, yeah, it's no problem. I'd never been to an AA meeting. Didn't know nothing about them. Uh, I remember my brother used to go, him and another guy, and they'd come home drunk. And I thought, y'all must have a hell of a time at these meetings. <laughs> but on a Wednesday night, it was time for me to go to that meeting. And I was sitting in a beer joint, and I was pretty loaded. And I thought, well, I better go to that meeting because ain't no telling what he'll do to me if I don't go. And, and uh, I went to the, my first meeting. It was in police court. And I remember walking up these steps, and I opened that door, and I looked in. There was about 10 of the oldest men i ever seen in my life. You know, they all looked like they was 90 years old. And I thought, man, do I got to do this? And I thought, well, I'll go in. And I did. I went in, and I sat down, and a guy got up and was talking. And about halfway through that meeting, the booze began to wear out of me. And I thought, man, I got to get out of here. So I got up and walked out, and Hildrick followed me out in the hall. This guy had got me out of jail. And he said, Larry, where are you going? I said, Hildrick, I hate to tell you this, but that AA's a bunch of bull crap. And I'm a-leaving, and I ain't a-coming back. And I remember Hildrick got a big old smirk on his face, and he said, if you're lucky and you live long enough, you'll be back. And I went down them steps. I skipped down them steps. I was 19 years old, and I thought, that old fool don't know what he's talking about. You know, I knew that I was not like them people. And I skipped down them steps, and I wasn't to touch base with Alcoholics Anonymous for about four more years. I think I was about 23 years old when I made my second meeting. By then, I was married. I went to work on the racetrack for a while, and I come home, and uh, I was back up on these corners that I hung on, and uh, this little young girl come walking up the street. And I, I knew her since she was five years old. You know, she was raised in my neighborhood, and, and I hadn't seen her for a while. And, and uh, I'm standing up on that corner, and she come walking up the street, and she grew up, and she had filled out. And she had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it, you know. <laughs> and me and her began to sneak around and see each other. Now, we had to sneak around because I had a pretty bad reputation in the neighborhood by now. Her daddy hated my guts. Oh, he used to tell her, stay away from that Adams boy, he's trouble. 
Now, Barbara was a good little girl. She uh, went to a religious school down there where we lived, and she studied the Bible and religion. And, and uh, I used to go up there, man, and these teachers would have a fit when they'd see me, and they'd tell her, stay away from him. He's trouble. And uh, she flunked that course, evidently, you know. Uh, but we got married. You know, and uh, man, that's the worst thing that ever happened to that woman. For about the next 18 years, I put her through hell. We're still married today for 37 years, and I don't know. You know, we've been together. <laughs> Last November, uh, I celebrated 18 years, and we'd had 18 years of drinking, and we had 18 years of sobriety, and I told her, I said, I'm even. Well, you don't ever want to tell an al that. That's the worst thing you can tell an al She said, what about the dry drunks? I said, oh, man, I'll never get even, you know. But uh, we got married, and you know what? We began to have children. Man, we had one kid, we went alone, and Barbara was pregnant. We had our second child, and we went alone, she was pregnant with our third child. I thought we was going to have 13 like my daddy, but we found out what was causing it, we stopped. Uh, <laughs> but our life's already a shambles because I'm going in and out of jail like a revolving door, you know. Every weekend, it's drunk, disorderly conduct, fighting, doing something, you know. I'm getting in all kinds of trouble. And, uh, you know, we're rolling along with these two kids and her pregnant with her third child. And uh, I'm running the streets of Louisville with the wildest crowd I can find. And we'd get in a car on Friday and Saturday night. We would cruise the streets. And if you left something out in your yard, you, we warned it, we took it. And I thought the world was a mark. And I don't have to tell you that when you live like that, you have to pay for it sooner or later. And it wasn't long until I was standing in front of one of them judges I told a joke on. And I remember he sentenced me to 10 years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary. And my wife was in that courtroom, and she was pregnant with our third child. She began to cry. And my mother and daddy was in that courtroom, and they began to cry. And I remember looking back, and I thought, what the hell are they crying for? I'm going to the penitentiary. <laughs> you know, I tell you that because I was 23 years old, and I had already lost the ability to care about another human being. The only person I cared about was myself. And away I went to the penitentiary, and guess what? All my friends was there. You know, they said, hey, Larry, what took you so long? And I thought, I wonder how they knew I was coming. You know, when you live like I do, that's the only place you're going to wind up. I tell you about going there for one special reason, because that was my second introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my first was in jail, and I'd progressed a little bit. And I'm in penitentiary now, and I'm going to go to AA for the second time. And I'm out walking the loop. If you've never been to penitentiary, I'm going to save you a trip. They got a great big old concrete path, and it goes all the way around the penitentiary when you don't have nothing to do. They said, let's walk the loop. And I'm walking the loop one day, and a buddy of mine come up, and he said, Larry, you want to go to a meeting tonight? Well, you ain't got a great social life in the penitentiary. You'll do about anything. And I said, well, I might. What kind of meeting is it? He said, an AA meeting. I said, are you crazy? I said, what do I want to go to an AA meeting for in the penitentiary? He said, might look good to the parole board. I said, where's the meeting at? You know, <laughs> I'd have went anywhere. And I did. I attended AA meetings for the next Two, month, two years. And I went every Wednesday night. And they would bring speakers in. And they would get up and carry the message to me. They would tell their story like I'm trying to tonight. And you know what that meeting would get over with? And I'd start back to my dormitory and I'd look at my buddy and I'd say, man, them guys has had a rough life, ain't they? Now it didn't dawn on me. They went out the front gate and went home to their wife and kids. And I went back and got locked up and I felt sorry for them. My sponsor told me insanity, the word insanity ought to come easy for me. You know, I could not connect that I was in a penitentiary as a direct result of alcoholism. My wife had went on aid for dependent children, and she had our third baby shortly after I was in a penitentiary, and I held that baby for the first time behind bars. 
And I remember thinking, boy, when I get out of here, things are going to be different. And my wife would get on a bus, and she would come up and see me every Sunday. And we would sit in that visiting room, and I'd make her all them promises, and I meant every one of them. I said, you just wait, honey, and when I get out of here, things are going to be different. And after a couple years, I made parole, and I went back home to my wife and three kids, and things was different for two weeks. We went on one of them extended honeymoons you got to go on when you've been gone. You got to get caught up, and it don't take long to get caught up, and I got bored. And I said, I think I'll walk up to the corner and see my buddies, and I went to my favorite beer joint, and I remember walking in. They said, hey, Larry, we're glad you're back. Have a beer. And I picked that bottle of beer up, and they talk about the progression of alcohol. Man, it was like I never left. I picked up right where I left off. We tried a geographical cure about this time in our life. We, uh, I took my wife to the racetrack, and she wins some money. And I said, what are you going to do with that money? She said, I'm going to buy a house. I know what's wrong with you. It's the people you run with that cause you to be like you are. And I agreed with her. And uh, she said, I'm going to buy a house out in Shavley, and it's like the suburbs of Louisville. And, and I remember my wife didn't believe in banks back then. She used to hide that money, and she would go somewhere, and I'd look for that money. I knew what to do with it, you know. And I never did find that money. And we bought our house with it. And it wasn't until I was in the fellowship that I went to hear my wife give a lead in Al-Anon, and she told where she used to hide that money. And I like to pass it on to my fellow alcoholics in case you ever go back out there. Uh, she used to hide them in flyer pots. So turn them damn flyer pots upside down. You know, who knows where that money is? And Alanine told me one day, she said, you shouldn't tell where we had our money. I said, she don't have it there no more. <laughs> I've checked. But uh, we bought this house, and we moved out into Shively, and my kids was all enthused, you know. They, they had a new school. My kids was growing up, you know, and I was never around for them. My wife was all enthused with this house, and I wasn't enthused with nothing. I hated it out there. And I'm a painter by trade. If you've ever heard of drunken painters, that's what I was. And after we got out there, uh, my brother was business agent for the painters' union, and he got me a maintenance paint job for a rubber company down in Louisville. And I went to work for this rubber company, and I didn't know nobody. You know, I would meet guys on that job, and they'd say, Larry, would you like to stop after work and have a drink? And I'd say, yeah. You know, and we would stop. There would be four or five of us. And, you know, they would drink a beer or two beers, and they'd wave at me, and they'd say, I'll see you in the morning. And I thought, where in the hell y'all going? We're just getting started. You know, I couldn't understand anybody that drank like that. So I began to change friends, and I began to find people that was just like me. And, you know, I would stay in them joints for four and five hours, and you know what I began to do? I began to go home and do the very thing that I hated my father for. My children began to hide under beds and in closets to get away from their drunken father. And it bothers me to talk about that because I know the terror that I felt when my father did it to me and now I was doing it to my children and I didn't want to. I didn't know nothing about a disease called alcoholism and it had me by the neck. And if you think things can't get bad when you're drinking, keep drinking because they'll get bad. And we lived out there and we just existed. I got to the point where I didn't go home very much because uh, all my wife was feeding me by now was cold shoulder and hot tongue, and I didn't like either one of them. My children had nothing to do with me because I was an embarrassment to them. My son was a football player in high school, and he would beg me to come to football games. My daughters was cheerleaders, and I'd promise them I would, and I never missed a game, but every game I went to while my son was down on the field playing football, 
His drunken father was up in the stands fighting and carrying on. What an embarrassment I was to my children. My son won a lot of awards and trophies, and he would ask me to come to banquets, and I'd promise him I would. And I never seen my son get one trophy or one award. The closest I ever got was when my son was in a building getting a trophy. His drunken father was laying out in a parking lot, passed out in a pool of puke. But I'd have told you, leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And I believe that alcoholism is truly a family disease. It's the only disease I know where one person can drink and another person can die. And my wife got in just as bad shape as I did before we got to this fellowship. In 1974, I fell at work, and I was drunk the day I fell, and I had to be rushed to the hospital, and I had the first of many back surgeries. And from 1974 to 1978, I started doing a lot of drugs. And I don't talk about drugs today because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's about alcohol. And besides that, I use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for every addiction I have. I don't have to go to six dozen different 12-step groups and get confused. I just come to AA and use the 12 steps. And it works fine. But from 1974 to 1978, alcohol and drugs completely consumed my life. You know, when you're doing drugs and you're drinking, you're trying to take a little money home, keep the bill collectors off your rear end, it takes a lot of money to live like that. And besides my maintenance job, I was working extra on the weekend. And I want to tell you where I got in my alcoholism. Let's show you how insane I got. My brother Norman called me up. Now, my brother Norman was my hero. You know, I used to go in them beer joints and they would be all that fighting and carrying on. You can look at me and tell I'm not big enough to be a fighter. But my brother Norman loved to fight. He was a big old husky guy. And he would rather fight than eat. And I kept him in training. You know, I'd start him and he would finish him. But uh, he called me up one Friday night and he said, Larry, we're going out to the Ford Motor Company and go to work. Would you like to work this weekend? I said, man, I need the money. Pick me up. And they was going to have about 25 painters out there. And five of them was going to be my brother's. And uh, they did. Him and my nephew picked me up on a Saturday morning. They honked a horn at 5.30 in the morning. I went and crawled in that car. And they had a bag of reefer laying on the front seat and a cooler full of vodka and orange juice. And they was both smashed at 5.30 in the morning. And I looked at them. I thought, boy, we're going to have a good time today. You know, <laughs> I knew we was in for a good time. And uh, we went out to the Ford Motor Company. It wasn't long until that vodka and orange juice was gone. And I told my nephew, I said, I'm going home. He said, what's the matter, Uncle Larry? And I said, man, I can't stay on this job. We ain't got nothing to drink. He said, well, you can't get out of here. And I said, man, you can get out of anywhere. And uh, I noticed they rolled around on little golf carts. And I seen a golf cart, and I went over and pushed a button, and it started up, and I whistled for my nephew. And we got on that golf cart, rolled up to the gatehouse, parked it, told the guard we had to go after some paint. And we went straight to a liquor store. And we got a bottle of whiskey for every pocket we had, me and him both. Because I had a lot of brothers on that job, and I knew they was thirsty. And we went back to that plane, and as we went through the gatehouse, this guard seen a bottle of whiskey in my nephew's pocket, and he snatched it. And needless to say, we got kind of belligerent with him. And we was arguing with him. He said, well, I don't know what to do with you guys. I'm going to call the captain. And when he went to use the phone, we snatched up that bottle of whiskey he had grabbed, and we ran out and jumped on that golf cart. And away we went. And my nephew said, Uncle Larry, you better open this up. They're coming after us. And I looked back, and there was two guards, and they was on a golf cart. And I said, man, I got this thing as wide open as it'll go. And he said, well, you better do something, or we're going to get caught. <laughs> we rounded this building, and I looked over by this building, and it was the shiniest fire engine I ever seen in my life. 
I haven't drove one before, and I haven't drove one since, but I was drunk enough that night. And we pulled over by that fire engine, and we jumped on it, had a set of keys dangling in it, just an alcoholic's luck, you know. And I started that fire truck up. Of course, I was in the driver's seat, you knew that. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but you can't drive a fire truck till you get the light and the siren going. And we got the light and the siren going. And away we went with that fire truck. And I remember my nephew looking back at them guards and waving at them, you know. We thought we was real slick. But all my life, I liked a lot of attention. And I looked at my nephew and I said, you know what? It'd be a shame to steal this fire engine and not let my brother see it. I knew they wanted to see this fire truck. And they was working way back in this building. And we went down through this building and the aisleways was just big enough to get this fire truck through. And we had that light a-going and that siren a-going. They was people working and they was diving everywhere. And my nephew was hollering, run over them SBs, Uncle Larry, kill them. Had you stopped that fire engine that very day and said, one of you guys is going to the penitentiary, I said, so what? By the grace of a loving God, he brought me to this fellowship and my nephew was to spend the next 14 years in the penitentiary as a direct result of alcoholism. But we took that fire engine to where my brothers was and they was really impressed. Their eyes got big and their mouth fell open and every guard at the Ford Motor Company was impressed too because they all showed up. And they was mad because we stole that fire engine. I couldn't understand that. We didn't hurt that old thing. And we got to arguing with them. And one of these guards shoved me. My brother Norman was there. I told you he was my protector. And when this guard shoved me, my brother Norman hit him upside the head. And we had one of the biggest free-for-alls with the guards out there that night that you ever seen in your life. Now, I used to tell this story in my favorite beer joint before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it went something like this that we whipped every guard at the Ford Motor Company. But when I come to you people, you taught me about a word I hated. It was called honesty. I'm going to tell you what really happened out there that day. We got the shit beat out of us. Yeah. And I was the littlest, and I got the worst. They mopped the floor up with me. And you know, they threw me and my brother and my nephew out of the Ford Motor Company. We stood outside and we was weaving. We said, we'll be back. <laughs> We're going home to get our pistols and we'll show you how bad we are. But we got detained along the way. We run into a beer joint. And you know, I had a hectic day since 5.30 that morning. It ought to have been enough for anybody, but I never got enough. I was like a pig. And I told my nephew to take me home and I got an old LTD station wagon, one of them drunk cars that's got dents all over it. And uh, he took off, and I tried to catch him, and the last thing I remember, I was doing 90 miles an hour. And I flipped that car five times, and I hit five trees. And I don't even remember this wreck. But my son was the first person to arrive at the scene of this wreck. He wasn't too far from there, and, and he heard this wreck, and he ran over and seen it was me. And he pulled me out of that wreck. He said it had knocked the shoes clean off my feet. And he pulled me out of that wreck, and my son, he grew up in my alcoholism, and he knew that he, if he left his daddy there, that he was going to jail. So he got a buddy, and they took me home. And I woke up that next morning, and I'm all beat up from that fight. I got a big old hinky on the side of my face, and I got broken ribs, and I mean, I am a mess. I weigh probably 115 pounds at this time. And this wonderful little Christian girl that I had married had turned into an attack dog. <laughs> yeah. You know, I woke up this morning, and she was sitting on my chest, and she had her finger going. And she began to tell me everything that happened the night before. And I said, oh, hell, if I had a wreck like that, I'd be dead. And she got me 
in our other car, and she took me over to the junkyard, and she showed me that car. And I remember looking at her in that parking lot, and I said, I'm never going to drink again. Never's a long time. I got drunk that night. You know, I meant that. I meant that with all my heart. And that's the way our life went. Right after I had this uh, bad weekend, as I like to call it, uh, I went into my regular job, and I went over to the paint shop, and everybody that drank and drug hung out in the paint shop. Now, we had some glorious times in that paint shop. We used to set a roll of chairs up where we could watch the whole plank. Y'all pardon me, I'm from the South, and I know some of my words are funny, like cheers, sound like cheer. Uh, but we would set these chairs up, and we could watch the whole plank so nobody would slip up on us, and we'd have a good time there in that paint shop. We'd smoke one of them funny little cigarettes, and we'd look out over the plank. You know, you do that for two or three hours, having a wonderful time. But the phone rang this morning. It was personnel director at my job. Now, he was a good friend of mine. He was my best enabler, if you want to call him enabler. But I believe today that he kept me alive long enough for God to get me to this fellowship. And he called me that morning. He said, Larry, I want to see you over to my office. And, you know, all my buddies said, what do you think Bill wants with you? And I said, ah, he probably wants to give me a raise. I'm such a good employee. You know, I was a rotten employee. But I went over to his office, and he was looking out a window. And he turned around, and he looked at me, and his mouth dropped open. He said, my God, it's awful. I thought, man, if you just had the kind of weekend I had, you wouldn't look so hot either. But I wasn't going to tell him about it. But he looked at me that morning in 1977, and to my knowledge, he was the first person to ever call me an alcoholic. He said, Larry, I know what's wrong with you. You're an alcoholic, and I know a place that can help you. And I got mad at him. And I thought, man, you're crazy. And I stomped out of his office after giving him a good cussing, and I went back over to the paint shop, and all my buddies was over there. They said, Larry, what did Bill want with you? And I said, you will never believe what he called <laughs> They said, really, what did he call you? I said, he said, I'm an alcoholic. They said, ah, hell, he tells everybody that. Come on, have a beer. <laughs> Y'all know who I believe, don't you? I left his office in 1977, and I continued to drink for another year. And I don't know where you got into your alcoholism, but I want you to know that I took my wife, children, mom, dad, brother, sister, anybody that cared anything about me, and I jerked them straight into the jaws of hell. We lived. A year after I left that man's office, I'd been out with my brother Norman on about a three- or four-day drunk, and as a result of that drunk, I overdosed on alcohol and drugs. And when I come to, I was in University Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, strapped down on a gurney, and I wasn't feeling too hot. They had a tube in every hole I had. And I'm sick, and I'm laying on that gurney, and a woman walked up to me, and I found out later she was a psychiatrist. And she said, Larry, we're going to put you upstairs before you hurt yourself or somebody. And I'm laying on that gurney, and I thought, she's going to lock my ass up. So I began to con and manipulate like I had done all my life. And I said, look, lady, if you'll let me out of this hospital, I'm going to do something about my drinking. And she said, do you really mean that, Larry? And I'm laying on a gurney, and I got straps on my legs, straps on my waist, and straps on my arms but I could get my swearing hand up. And I looked up at her, and I said, I swear to God, if you'll let me out of here, I'm going to do something about my drinking. And you know, she let me out of that hospital, and I did do something about my drinking. I stopped at the first beer joint I could find and bought a six-pack. Because I want to tell you by now, that's all I knew to do. I knew I had to drink to live, and no other, I couldn't do nothing else. And alcohol had me and was taking me. And that's where I was on November the 7th, 1978. I got up that Monday morning, and I went into my regular job. And I started over to the paint shop, and I was so sick that I couldn't hardly walk, physically, mentally, and spiritually. 
And as I started over to the paint shop, I passed this personnel director's office. And I remember what Bill had told me and what he had called me a year earlier. And I thought, I think I'll go in and talk to Bill. And I tried the door, and he wasn't in. And I went around to the back where he usually come in. It was real dark. And I sat on them steps on November the 7th, 1978. And I'll never forget how I felt that morning. I sat there and I cried. Because I was waking up a lot of mornings, and I was putting my feet over on the side of the bed, and I was putting my head in my hands, and I was crying. Because I knew that I had to lie and cheat and steal from the very people that I loved the most, and that's alcoholism. He finally come in and see me sitting on the steps, and I said, Bill, you told me about a place that can help people like me. I said, where is it? And he told me about a treatment center. And I said, well, look, I'll go tomorrow. That's famous words for an alcoholic. He said, no, you're going today. And he called my wife up, and they took me to a treatment center on November the 7th, 1978. And I had no idea that I was about to begin a journey into Alcoholics Anonymous. I stayed 30 days in that treatment center, and a lot of things happened in there. But the most important thing that happened, and the most important thing that can happen for anybody, is to find out about Alcoholics Anonymous. And this treatment center thoroughly introduced me to this program. And my 30 days was up, and I went back to a wife that was crazier than a June bug, to three teenage children by now. My kids had become teenagers, and I didn't even know it, you know. And they was uncontrollable. And I left that treatment center, and I thought we was going home and be the Beaver family. <laughs> oh, Lord, was I in for a rude awakening. You know, I remember going home, and I set my kids down at the table, my wife, and I said, things are going to be different. And my youngest daughter went, oh, no. And it kind of ticked me off. And I went to an AA meeting that night, and I met my first uh, sponsor, and his name was Dave. And I said, Dave, my family don't believe me. He said, hell, I don't believe you either. <laughs> he said, oh, we got to go on your track record. He said, how many times have you told your family you wasn't going to drink? And I said, about a million. And he told me something that day I hope I never forget. He said, the greatest talk that you'll ever make is the one you walk. He said, walk in front of your family and let them see the change in you. Now, I'd like to tell you that we was an instantly happy family, but that's not true. It was awful at my house. My kids was, you know, I had been out of their life, all their life. And I began to give them curfews, and they began to rebel. And I used to hold court at the kitchen table. Any of y'all ever done that while they was trying to eat? And the food would get hung in their throat. And I would bang on the table, and my favorite vocabulary at that time was profanity. And when that didn't work, I'd throw temper fits. Any of y'all ever threw temper fits in sobriety? And I'd jump up and down, and I'd beat on a countertop. And a guy in AA told me, he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? And I said, what? And he said, you got a little brat inside of you, and his name's Buster. And Buster's running your life. I said, really? What do I do about that? And he said, you need to spank Buster's ass and put him to bed. <laughs> you know? And I will tell you, yeah. I still got to spank Buster's butt today, you know, because he'll take over my life. It was awful at my house, and the only thing that I can tell you that i done right is I went to an AA meeting every night. And I used to leave sometimes, and my parting words was hell with it, I'm going to get drunk. But somehow, I would make it to a meeting, and my sponsor or somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous would be there for this lunatic. I was a lunatic when I got here. I wasn't a very lovable person. 
And I'm going to tell all you newcomers that they give you nicknames when you come in here. They just won't tell you, you know. And when I got here, I used to have an old trench coat that I wore. And I'd get in that trench coat and I'd back up against the wall. I didn't trust nobody. And they nicknamed me Columbo when I got here. <laughs> They'd say, here comes Columbo. Keep away from it. You know, I was an angry person. Thank God for the people that was here when I got here. Thank God for the guys that stood out in the parking lots sometimes till midnight and talked to this crazy drunk. But uh, my kids finally got enough of me and their mother. My son joined the Navy. Now, he started falling in the back door drunk and loaded on grass. And I thought, how can he do this to me? As good of a dad as I've been to him. You know, and I'm trying to stay sober. He didn't give a damn if I was trying to stay sober or not. He wanted to drink. And uh, me and him went around and around. And I had enough ego at that time that I thought I could straighten my son out. If there's anybody in here trying to straighten out your children, good luck. You know, I can't help my son. I can help your son or your daughter. I can't help my son. I can't think straight. And uh, my son finally joined the Navy. You know, he was desperate to get away from us. My two daughters up and left and went to Texas to live with my sister. That left me and Barbara, my wife. Now, you talking about two sorry people. We used to sit at a table and just stare at each other. We didn't know how to communicate. All we ever talked about is what I'd done the night before. Thank God for AA and Al-Anon. You know, I used to carry my sobriety like a club over my wife's head. If she didn't do just what I wanted her to, I said, I'll get drunk. Boy, she'd snap up right like that. But she found that other fellowship called Al-Anon, and my life was about to change. <laughs> I had no idea what was in store for me. We began to go to meetings, and we began to meet couples. And I remember one night we was home, and my wife wasn't doing just exactly what I wanted her to, and I said, I'll get drunk. And she turned around and looked at me, and she said, who gives a shit? <laughs> she said, your sobriety is your responsibility. I'll not take any credit for it, and I'll not take any blame for it. And I thought, man, I've got to get her away from them women. <laughs> now, the, my wife had an Al-Anon sponsor, and I'm not picking on you, Al-Anons. I love you dearly. And I'm so grateful that my wife goes to Al-Anon, that she's not an AA escort, that she goes and attends her own meeting. But uh, I hated my wife's Al-Anon sponsor worse than anybody I ever met. You know, because she's teaching my wife all these underhanded things. And, and I remember one night we was at a meeting, and I'd come out of the AA room, and here they'd come out of the Al-Anon room. And I didn't like her very much, and I walked up, and I made a fatal mistake. I said, well, I guess y'all been back there talking about me. And she said, you skinny little shrimp, what makes you think we'd waste an hour on you? <laughs> I didn't like her before, and I didn't like her then. Now, the only person I hated worse than this Al-Anon sponsor of my wife's was my Al-Anon sponsor's husband. He was in AA, and he was the meanest guy I ever met in my life. He used a lot of four-letter words for guys like me that couldn't understand, and, and I hated him. And they was always trying to get me and my wife to go somewhere. And, you know, they, they, couples would get together and they would go out. And I'd tell my wife, I'd say, his name was Louie. Louie's dead today, but I love him dearly. And uh, I'd say, if Louie calls, you tell him we ain't going. And Louie would call, and my wife would hand me the phone. <laughs> and I'd say, hi, Louie, what time you go pick us up? <laughs> I was scared of Louie. God put Louie in my path because he knew Louie could get me to do things that nobody else could. And we begin to go places with AA and Al-Anon couples. 
and they learned us how to be a couple. We didn't know how to be a couple. I've watched, by example, other couples in this fellowship, and I learned how to be a husband to my I owe that to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al and I. And I remember one time they got us together, and they had 50 couples, and we went to see a play, and it was called Camelot. Now, I'd never been to a play in my life, and I remember I loved it. And they had a halftime, intermission, whatever you call a play. I walked outside to smoke a cigarette, and one of them big tough guys from Portland was out there. He said, Larry, I didn't know you liked this kind of stuff. I said, hell, I didn't either. You know, I'd spent my whole life in beer joints. I'd never seen a play. You know, I'd seen cuttings and shootings and beatings, but I'd never seen a play. It's only been through Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that me and my wife began to experience life. We begin to go places, to conferences, and to roundups, and we begin to have a wonderful relationship together. My children was all gone, and I'd go to my sponsor, and I'd whine. And my sponsor worked second shift in a computer room. And I had crises. I don't know about y'all, but I had big crises at 10.30 at night. And I would call him up, and he would listen to all of them. And one night I called him up, and he said, Larry, why don't you do what normal people do? I said, Dave, what do normal people do? He said, at 10.30 at night, they go to bed, and he hung up on me. <laughs> See, what he taught me was to keep this program simple. You know, and I'm going to tell you today, when I have a bad day sometimes, I go to bed early. You know, the next day, it never seems quite as bad. But uh, we kept going to meetings. And I heard a guy say, you know, I was so dry that first year. You know, I didn't pick up that book. I didn't work no steps. I just got dressed and went to an AA meeting. Just being with you people was enough. And I heard a guy say from one of these podiums, as dry as all you can be, you might as well be drunk. I'm going to tell you, I don't agree with that. If you're sitting here tonight and you're dry, you stay here. Because you've got to be dry to get sober. And you can't get it outside. You stay here. I was so dry in this program, I could have lit your cigarette. You know, uh, it was awful, you know. And somehow, I stayed in this fellowship, and I got a token for one year, continuous sobriety. And the most surprised people in that room was me and my wife. My wife told me she waited the whole first year for me to fall because she knew I would. And, we, I, you know, by the grace of God, I stayed in this fellowship. After I got my token, I went to my sponsor, and I said, Dave, there's something wrong with me. And he laughed. He said, there's a whole lot wrong with you, fella. <laughs> he said, what's the matter, Larry? And I said, man, I see people around Alcoholics Anonymous, and they've got something I've never touched. He said, what do you mean? And I said, I can look in their eyes and I can see the way they act. And I said, they act so peaceful and serene. And I said, inside of me, I'm a bowl of jello. He said, you want more out of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, sure. And he said, you got to do more. And I said, like what? And he said, like the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you got to pick up that big book and you got to begin to read that big book. And with his help, I was able to start on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what a journey it's been. I remember he helped me through the first three steps. And we got to the fourth step, and he said, you got to do an inventory. I said, i already done an inventory in treatment. He said, you've done one around AA, too. <laughs> and I had, man. I knew what you was doing wrong, but I never took a look at myself. And with his help, I got a pencil and a piece of paper, emotionally sparled little brat that had never grew up, that blamed everybody 
for his problems and never took a look at himself. And for the first time in my life, I sat down with a piece of paper and I took a look at me and the harm that I had to people. And I remember after I got that fourth step done, I said, Dave, what do I do now? And he said, I suggest you read it most likely to me. And I did. I sat with my sponsor in a park. And for the first time in my life, I took my false face off. And I let another human being and the God of my understanding, which already knew all about me, I let this guy know all about me. And I think the fifth step is a mighty important step in this program. I call it the humility step. Because you let me think I'm a hot shot around AA, and you let that guy or that gal you done that fifth step walk in the room. You ain't too big of a hot shot in their eyes. And it keeps me real humble. And I remember shortly after I did my fifth step, my sponsor said, now you can begin to fill your insides all about. And that's been my journey this year. I want all of this program. I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to tell you, I was about two years sober in this program, and I got on a white horse. I know none of y'all's ever done this. I wanted to give this program to everybody. You know, and I got so bad that uh, I started sponsoring a guy, and I'd get him in a car, and we would ride in downtown Louisville, and there was an old abandoned hospital down there, and the wannos used to crawl up in the bushes at nighttime and sleep, and me and this guy would drag them out of the bushes and take them to detox. <laughs> and it got so bad that when my car would come down Walnut St uh, Oak Street in Louisville, them wannos would take off running. You know, hell, he didn't want to go to detox. They just wanted to drink wine. You know, I want to give his program to everybody. And they'd go to my sponsor and he'd say, oh, leave him alone. He's on his white horse. He'll get tired of it. And I did. I got tired of chasing drunks. You know, I found out this was a program for who wants it, not who needs it. And I'm willing to help anybody. But uh, I got involved in this fellowship. And uh, my first sponsor quit coming around. I had to look around for a new sponsor. And when I met Jack, when I first come around Alcoholics Anonymous, I hated this guy. I thought, man, I don't like that guy. I don't want to be around him. And slowly but surely, I knew that Jack had something I wanted. And I asked him to be my sponsor. He's been. He has literally set an example for me to follow in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's got 35 years in this fellowship, and he's a guy that I want to be like. He shows me by example how to live this program, and I've had quite a time with Jack. And I used to go to him, and I'd say, man, I wish my family would move back. My kids was gone. And he said, they will, and I'd say when, and he'd say time. And I want you to know that God began to bring my children home one at a time. He knew if he brought them all home at one time, we'd kill each other. He brought my youngest daughter home first. Her name's Sherry. And Sherry's a good little girl. She's crazy as a loon. She don't drink. But uh, when she first come home, I just tried to be her dad. I didn't try to, to run her life, and I still don't try and run her life today. Sometimes I wish I could, but I love her just the way she is. And, and I remember Sherry come home and begin to live with me and her mother, and we had a wonderful time. And we began to love each other because she's seen a change in me because of the 12 steps of alcoholics and people. And I remember shortly after Sherry was home, she got a job at a bank. And <laughs> she come in one night all excited, and she said, Dad, I got some tickets to the ballet where you and Mom go. And I thought, whoop. But I wanted to be part of my daughter's life, and me and my wife got all dressed up, and we went to the ballet with her. And she had some seats down in the front, about three rows back in the middle. And we sat down there, and they got ready to start this ballet, and a woman walked out on the stage. And she said, hi, my name's Kathy. And I hollered, hi, Kathy. 
And I was the only person in that auditorium that hollered high Kathy. And my daughter tried to crawl under the seat. She said, Dad, you can't take you nowhere. She said, AA has runt you. <laughs> and me and her laugh about it. You know, we've had some good times together. Uh, I watched my youngest daughter go through some tough times. She uh, got married and, and uh, lived in a lot of different places. And she finally went through a divorce. And, and it hadn't been but about two years ago she married this guy. And I really didn't like him. She should have let me pick her husband. But... It didn't work that way, and I still ain't real fond of him today. He don't like to work. And uh, but you know what? I love her for just what she is. She's my daughter. I don't try and tell her how to live today. I know she loves me because she's been in and out of my house a lot. You know, I got a basement. I'm going to tell any of you that's getting ready to buy a house, don't get a basement, you know, because your kids have come home a hundred times, and mine has, and that's all right. I'm just kidding about it. But uh, me and Sherry's got a good relationship today. She's a very religious girl and she tells me about her God and I share the God of that my son David chip off the old block David went in the Navy he come out of the Navy and David done all the things that I did I watched my son go in and out of jail I watched him go to prison I watched him live out on the streets my son the only thing I could do was walk in front of my son and let him see the change that Alcoholics Anonymous brought to his father and David finally made it to Alcoholics Anonymous, and he stayed sober for a year. And a little girl got her token at the same time, and him and her went out to celebrate. And for the next 10 years, I watched my son in and out. I've seen times that I couldn't even let my son. It was a hard task. Sometimes we didn't know if David was alive or dead about it. And I want to tell you how God works in this program. I was invited to go down to Louisiana to speak, and I didn't want to go. I just uh, had had a back surgery, and I wasn't feeling real good. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to call up and cancel. And she said, oh, don't. She said, let's go. And we went down to Louisiana, and I talked to the conference down there. And after the conference was over, my oldest daughter was at that conference, and she came up and she said, Dad, there's a guy over there I want you to talk to. And I said, honey, I feel real bad. I'd like to go up to the room, tell him I'll talk to him tomorrow. And she said, no, you got to talk to him tonight. And I went over and I met a guy that was become one of my dearest friends down in Louisiana, an old Cajun. And he, him and his wife become real good friends of mine and my wife. And we would go down and visit them and they was us. And uh, he called me up one day and he said, what are you doing? I said, they knew all about David, you know. They had heard all the escapades of David. And he called me one day and he said, what's going on? I said, well, David's sitting here trying to hustle me for $20. And he said, let me talk to that rascal. Now, he had never met David before in his life. And he got my son on the phone. And here's a guy that I didn't even know. I went somewhere that I didn't want to go, and I talked to a guy that I didn't want to talk to. And he got my son on the phone and invited him to come to Louisiana and live with him. And he got me on the phone. He said, will you buy David a ticket here? And I said, one way. <laughs> and he went down to Louisiana to live. And I don't know what they done for him. They could love him when I couldn't. And David got sober down there. And he called me up after he'd been down there quite a while, and he said, Dad, I want to come home. And David come back to Louisville, and he got involved in this fellowship. And he got another year. And he got 14 months in this program, and about two weeks ago. But I know one thing. He's been here back. Then I know God loves him as much as he loves me, our sons and daughters. He's watched out for us. 
And my wife seems to do better with her al program than I do my AA program. You know, and I watch the way that she's able to show David love and concern. And I'm grateful that she's able to. My oldest daughter, she was a tough one. My oldest daughter moved to Texas. She got married down there. She had two grandbabies down there, two boys. And I used to go to my sponsor, and I said, I wish Janet would move closer to Louisville. He'd say, be careful what you pray for. And you know what? She did move closer to Louisville. She left her husband and moved in my house <laughs> with two little babies. One was six and one was four. By now, I had retired. I'd had several back operations, and I went out on a disability. I was on uh, disability social security, and my wife was working part-time. My daughter come home with them two kids, and she went to work. And guess who babysat at them two little fellas? <laughs> Grandpa. A four-year-old and a six-year-old. And uh, we used to take the six-year-old to day school, and we would drop him off, and me and a four-year-old. And I told my sponsor, Jack, I said, me and this little kid get along wonderful. He said, y'all should. You're the same age. <laughs> and I want to tell you how our day went. We would get everybody going, and me and that little fella would go to a video store. We'd get one of them kids' videos, and we'd come home, and I'd fix him a snack, and I had a great big old king-size bed with a bunch of pillows on it. And we'd pop that video into that TV, and we'd get up on them pillows. You know where that little fella would get? And we'd be watching them movies, and every once in a while, he would reach over and he'd kiss me on the cheek. And he'd say, I love you, Papa. Man, y'all can have my drink today. The two little fellas has never seen their grandfather drunk. They've never seen me chase their grandmother out of the house in a drunken... And I owe that to the God of my understanding and the 12 steps of alcoholism. My daughter stayed with us for a while, and she decided to go back to Texas. And everybody said, you're going to cry when they leave. I said, just till they get out of the driveway. <laughs> I found out I can love them in Texas, too. But she went back to Texas, and it wasn't too, too long to her and her husband did get a divorce. And she stayed down in Texas and got a good job. And she met a wonderful man down there, and he had two kids. He had a little girl, a little bitty girl, about four years old. And she got married to him, and they've got a wonderful life. He's a wonderful man. And I love to go down there. And that little granddaughter... She can get anything I got. She knows what to do to her grandfather. You know, and I go down to visit them and I have a wonderful time. And they think their grandfather is the most wonderful world. And I do too today. I love them and I like to be around them. And I'm a big kid at heart. I love to have fun. And I've learned how to have fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, I hear people say, man, AA's great. And they got a big old frown on their face. If you think your sobriety's so wonderful, put a smile on your face. Let your face know. Let your face know. Real important. My oldest daughter probably hated me worse than any of my children when she left home. And I want you to know today, my oldest daughter calls me up and sometimes we talk for an hour on the phone. And she asks me for advice. It blows me away. She wouldn't have spit on me if I was on fire when she left home. Today she respects and loves her father. And I love her very much. I have been blessed beyond my wildest imagination. I've got to see some of my brothers come into this fellowship. You know that big tough guy, Norman, that did all my fighting? He called me up one day. He said, how about taking me to that hospital? And I said, how come? He said, they can help you, they can help me. And my brother become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And him and his wife and me and my wife, we used to go everywhere together. We went to conferences and roundups and everywhere. 
And we had the time of our life. And my brother was three years sober in this program. And I want you to know when he got here, he was a big, tough guy. He didn't even let women hug him, much less guys. You know, he didn't want nobody to mess with him. But he stayed around this fellowship and he met the most important and the most powerful thing that's in this world. It's called L-O-V-E, love. He felt the love in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I seen all this big old tough guy fall away. And he was three years sober in this program. And he called me up one day and he said, man, I got some bad news today. And I said, what's the matter, brother? And he said, I found out I got cancer. And I said, how bad? He said, I don't know. I want you to go to the doctor with me. And we went back and my brother had terminal cancer. And he only gave him three months to live. And he spent most of that last three months of his life in a hospital. And every night when everybody would leave, I would go to the hospital and I would sit with my brother Norman. He was my hero, I told you that. And everybody would leave and I'd pull a chair by his bed and I'd say, what do you want to do tonight, Norm? And he'd say, why don't you read to me from the big book? And we talked about God and we talked about love and we talked about death. I remember one night he was laying in bed and he was chuckling. I said, what are you laughing about, Norm? And he said, AA. I said, what's so funny? And he said, them AAs are crazy. I said, what do you mean? He said, they laugh when they're supposed to cry and they cry when they're supposed to laugh. He said, but I want you to know that I love them. And some nights I would watch my brother laying in that bed and he would be in a lot of pain. And I couldn't hardly stand it. And I want you to know that some AA or some Al-Anon would slip up to the emergency room to check on these two big tough guys. Uh, and my brother died. And, it, and when my brother died, I had a hole inside of me as big as the state of Texas. And I thought, man, I can't go on. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I remember I would hit my knees and I'd say, God, please give me the strength to make one more day. And I want to tell you what, God's never too late. And I want to tell you what he did for me after my brother died. He began to give me some of the worst people in the world to sponsor. <laughs> they was people just like my brother. You know, and I want you to know that my life becomes so busy that I didn't have time to grieve my brother much. And I know my brother don't want me to grieve him. And I'm happy today that my brother got to have three years in this wonderful fellowship. And he got to know love. And you got to know him. And I'm so grateful for that. And my life got busy. I mean, my house was like Grand Central Station, you know. And, and I remember my wife said, I ain't heard you holler about nothing for three months. I said, hell, I ain't had time, you know. And I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're having a tough time, get you somebody to run with that's having a tougher time. Get you somebody to sponsor. And, buddy, it'll take all the focus off of you. And that's what happened to me. My dad, I was two years sober in this program, and my dad was 80-some-odd years old. You know that guy I hid under the bed in closets to get away from? And me and my dad wasn't very close. I called him my old man. I didn't particularly like my dad. I never was close to him. And my dad got sick, and they took him to the hospital. My sponsor called me up, and he said, Larry, you want to go to a meeting tonight? And I said, I can't. He said, why not? And I said, I got to go to the hospital and see my old man. He said, really? You don't sound like you want to. And I said, I don't particularly. I said, my old man never done nothing but make my life miserable. He said, Larry, how come you can't forgive your father? He said, you want your children to forgive you. He said, you don't hate your dad. You hated the things that he'd done. He said, your dad done them things because of a disease called alcoholism. And he said, the same reason you done them things, 
He said, you know, how can you want your children to forgive you and you give your dad? He said, how in the world can you close a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and ask God to forgive you your trespasses as you forgive those who trespass against you and you can't forgive your dad? Boy, he gave me a whole lot to munch off. And I went to the hospital to see my dad and I was 40 years old and my dad was in his 80s. And I looked at my dad laying in the bed. I knew I didn't hate my dad. Yeah, I hated the things he'd done. But I sat out on the bed and I took my dad's hand and for the first time that I can remember, I looked at my father and I said, Dad, I want you to know that I love you. And I seen a tear come out on my father's cheek. And he said, I love you too. My friends, that's alcoholism. It divides fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and brothers. And I began a relationship with my father. He got better. And my dad lived to be 93 years old. I'm from good stock. <laughs> and I never went to see my dad after that, that I didn't hug him, and I didn't kiss him on the cheek and tell him I loved him. My dad become my best friend. And my dad was proud that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He would tell me, you better go to one of them there meetings. You know, he knew what AA had done for me. And I was with my dad when he died. He was 93 years old. And I was holding his hand. And I was telling him I loved him. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I tell you about that amends because you may have somebody in your life that you need to make an amend to. Please make them amends. And maybe you'll have the relationship that I was to have with my dad. My mom, she's still alive today. She's 93 also. She will be this month. You know, I'm from double stock. <laughs> and my mom lived in an apartment by herself after my dad died. And me and my brothers took care of her. And my mom finally got so bad that she couldn't live by herself. And me and my brothers and sisters had a meeting. And, you know, that little old guy that said, when I grow up, I'm going to take care of my mother. God must have thought I would grew up because my mother come to live with me and my wife. We talked about it, and we took my mom in last February. And she's been living with us, and it has been a ride. <laughs> Now I know how she raised 13 kids. She's the most bullheaded, mule-headed woman I've ever met in my life. And it's been quite an experience. It has altered our life a lot. You know, but I'm so grateful that I was sober and I was able to be there for my mother in a time that she needed me. About a month ago, my mother began to fall. And she began to hurt herself, no matter how much we watched her. And she took a fall about... A month ago, and she had to, I had to rush her to the hospital. We had to put stitches in her eyes. She took a pretty bad fall. And while I had her in the hospital, social services come down to see me. And he said, Larry, we think you ought to put your mother in a nursing home before she gets hurt. And I didn't know what to do. And we went in to talk to my mom, and she agreed to go into this nursing home. And we put her in a nursing home that was about a mile away from my house. And I went over twice a day to see my mother and I hated it and my mother hated it and after my mother was in there for a week I kidnapped her <laughs> I went in the nursing home and just got all of her stuff I didn't call my brothers my sisters or nobody I just took control and I brought mom back home and she was tickled to death to come back home and I was tickled that she could come back home and the hospital called me and they sent somebody over and they began to give us some help. 
and we've got some nurses to come to visit my mother and was to help give her a bath and they do some of the things that I was unable to do and it's really made a difference and my mom's doing great and she hates for me to get on airplanes and fly you know when I told her I was going to Canada she thought that was another world uh, but I've got a good relationship with mom today and I'm able to do things for her see Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me how to be a good son it's taught me how to be a good husband it's taught me how to be a good father and it's taught me how to be a good friend. You know, I want you to know that I have been on the mountaintop. I have seen and done things that I only dreamed about. But I also want you to know that I've been in the valley. I've had a lot of hard times since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I've had some wonderful times. And I've met some of the most fascinating people on the face of the earth in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know tonight that I wouldn't take a million dollars for where I'm standing. But I want you to know that I'd give it all up for a drink if I'm not careful. Because I've seen it happen. And I make a lot of meetings. I still make a lot of meetings. And I think it's important that I'm responsible to Alcoholics Anonymous for all the wonderful things that it's done for me. You know, I need to repay it. And the only way I can repay it is to be at meetings. When I want to lay on the couch and watch a football game, I get to a meeting. Because some guy was at that meeting for me. And I want another Larry Adams to walk through them doors. And I want him to have the kind of life that I've had for almost 19 years. And I can't give it to him on the couch. I need to be there. I'm very active in my home group on Sunday night. You know, I travel a lot. And sometimes I don't get back in time. And, and uh, I go on Monday night and they'll say, Hey, big shot, put out the ashtrays. You know, these guys I run with know how to keep me humble. And that's good. I have a good time in Alcoholics Anonymous. I run with a crazy bunch, and we laugh, and we cut up, and we have a wonderful time. But we're serious about staying sober. You know, and if you're trying to do it alone, it's miserable. Get with a crowd that's wacky and crazy. And have a good time in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what this is all about, having a good time. When I walked out of a treatment center, if you had asked me what my greatest fear was, I said, what am I going to tell my friends? You know, what am I going to tell them when they want me to drink and drug? And I believe that God gives you what you need when you need it. And God give me a poem, and I'm going to close here in a minute with this poem. And it tells you what to tell your friends when you're having a bad day. But before I do, I want to thank the committee again for having me in Canada. It's been a, quite an experience for me. And, and, you know, I don't know if I've said anything tonight to help you, but I want you to know that I've been touched by the hand of God. And God has seen fit for me to be here tonight to carry what a kind of a message I have to carry. But I want you to know that if a guy like me can come to this fellowship and can stay in this fellowship one day at a time, anybody ought to make this program. You know, and that's what we do is we set examples for anybody. And I want to tell you tonight, if you haven't done all the crazy things that I've done, you don't have to go out and do them. They're not a requirement for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I share my story with you. I've done it, you know, and somebody done it for me. You don't have to go as far as I've gone. You can get off that elevator at any level you want to. <coughs> my wife couldn't make this trip with me. My wife's not doing real well. She's getting emphysema, and she's had a mild stroke. And guess who takes care of her today? I do. I do the cooking. I didn't know how to cook a lick before I got uh, retired. When she began to learn me how to cook, 
but I want you to know I'm a good cook. I must be. She loves it, <laughs> you know. And I try and take care of Barbara today. Not because I'm a great guy. I don't do all these things because I'm a great guy. I do it because you people taught me about making amends and loving the people that I'm so close to. And me and Barbara's got a good relationship today. We have a wonderful time together. And we're growing old in this fellowship together. You know, I'm so grateful that I can do these things for her. And we go places. Sometimes she comes with me at these conferences. And, and we have a wonderful time. And she sends her love, especially to the Alanites. You know, and she still tries to go to her meetings. She can't make as many meetings as she used to. And that's been hard on her. But I hear her on the phone talking to her sponsor. And that's real important that she stays in contact. And I want you to know I've had a lot of surgery since I've been in this ranch. And I'm going to shut up here in a minute. I don't know how long I've been talking, but I'm not through yet. <laughs> I had to have blood. And I went to have this one surgery, and it was going to be a 10-hour surgery. And he said, Larry, you've got to give five units of your own blood. Now, you can look at me and tell I ain't got five units in me. <laughs> and I was able to give two, and they said, you've got to get some blood donated. And three guys that I run around with in Alcoholics Anonymous went up and give blood for me. And I had this 10-hour surgery, and I had to be laid in a bed for two months. And I wasn't allowed to get up to even go to the bathroom. And I want you to know that AA people took care of me. They'd come over to my house and babysat me while my wife got out to meetings when she could still go on a regular basis. And I want you to know they brought meetings to my house. And I want you to know the most amazing thing in the world. They emptied my urinal. Now, if you think that ain't a big thing, if you get sick and you have to use a urinal, you call your favorite beer joint up and ask your buddies to come over and empty your urinal. <laughs> if they'll empty your urinal, I'll drink it. <laughs> and I had to have another surgery, and I had to have two more units of blood. Now, these three guys that give me blood, one of them's name was Craig. Craig's real lazy. When I don't want to do nothing, I tell my wife Craig's blood's acting up. The other one's name's Bobby, and he's fairly new in the program, and when I'm having a real spastic day, I tell my wife it must be Bobby's blood. The other one's a real young guy, and his name's Todd, and he likes the ladies. If my wife catches me looking at one of you pretty girls too long, I tell her it's Todd's blood acting up. You know, and, and, but I had this surgery, and it wasn't long until I had to have another one. I had rods put in. They had to take one of them out, and I had to have two more units of blood, and my sponsor, Jackson, I'm going to give you a unit of blood. I said, oh, Jack, you're too old. He said, I want you to finally have some royal blood in your family. <laughs> now, Jack was an old wine old that slept behind a cafe in a, wooden, in a cardboard box. And damn, if he don't think he's got royal blood, that can ha only happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and Jack went and gave me a unit of blood. And I want to tell you today that I'm walking on the face of this earth with my sponsor's blood. And I'm grateful. I hope I can be one-tenth of the member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I love him dearly. Sometimes I hate him, but most of the times I love him because he's been there for me. And like I told you, that life's good for me today. When I walked out of that treatment center, I thought, what am I going to tell my friend? And God give me this poem, and I'd like to close with this poem, and maybe you're having a tough day. And i got to put my little old glasses on, you know, uh, my eyesight's failing. Everything about me's going. And this poem's called An AA Member's Dream. And it said, I dream one night I passed away and left this world behind. I started down that lonely trail, some of my friends to find. I came to a signboard on the trail, 
the directions it did tell. Keep right to heaven, turn left to hell. I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hopeless, boozing wreck. I knew there at the crossroads the path I I started down the rocky path that leads to Satan's place. I shook within, not knowing what I'd have to face. Old Satan met me at the gate. What's your name, my friend? I'm just sober Sam that came to a sad end. He glanced through the yellow files. You made a mistake, I fear. You're listed as an alcoholic. We don't want you here. I said, I'm looking for my friend. And a smile stole over his face. If your friends are alcoholics, they're in the other place. So I went back the way I came to the crossroads I did see. And I turned right to heaven as happy as could be. St. Pete smiled and said, come in. I have for you a birth. You are an alcoholic. You've had a hell on earth. I saw old Bud, Pete, Bill, and a friend called Belle. And brother, I was tickled because I thought they'd gone to hell. So brothers, I'll take warning. Learn something from my trip. You've got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. If someone tempts you with a drink when you're not feeling well, just tell them you're going to heaven and they can go to hell. Thank you and God bless you.